This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Today, as so many generations have before, we gather on our national mall to tell an essential part of our American story. One that has, at times, been overlooked. We are at the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. This is the opening of it. It's just a history for everyone, not just for African American culture, but also for, uh, for everyone. When I walked in, I said, this is the most beautiful thing in the whole world. You just get this whole breath of newness around you. Like it's a new world in there. It's just moving forward. It's like you can see straight through everything and it's so clear, it's so focused. And you can see the past, but then you look on one other side and you see how it is getting better in life each year as we go. It's just history of the American black life. It's, it's amazing. You need to go in there and see. Welcome to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. You've been listening to the hubbub surrounding the opening of the new National Museum of African American History and Culture. It's a hugely important, a hugely exciting space. A few months ago, on working, we had the pleasure of interviewing Mary Elliott, one of the curators at that museum. And she told us a little bit about an exhibit that she was putting together there with her colleagues, one that tries to complicate some received narratives about the history of slavery, even as it inspired to anticipate viewers' questions and enrich their understandings of that tragic history. This week, we are re-airing that episode, so you can get a sense of what went into this remarkable, important museum in the lead-up to its grand opening this week. And in a Slate Plus Extra, Mary Elliott tells us more about her early forays into history, researching her own family. Can you tell us who you are and what you do? My name is Mary Elliott, and I am a museum specialist at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of African American History and Culture, and I am co-curating the Slavery and Freedom Exhibition with my colleague, Dr. Nancy Burkaw. So what does that entail? A lot. <laughs> um, every day is different. I could definitely say that. Um, and it's particularly exciting because right now we're working on this brand new, highly anticipated museum. This museum has in one way or another been in progress since like 1929, right? 
Well, actually, even before then, you know, there were a group of African-American men who formerly served in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And so they actually wanted to create a monument that honored African-Americans that served in the military. Mm -hmm. And that discussion started around 1916. Wow. Right. How did you become involved, I assume, much more recently? I actually came on board in 2011. I had been doing family history research that turned into a larger research project related to African-American history and culture and just American history. You were originally researching your own family history? I was. And my family, actually, they were enslaved in South Carolina, and they were emancipated in Mississippi. What did that research entail? I had finished law school, and my uncle was sick. And I had done a little bit of research, but I remember he told me, Mary, whatever you do, please promise me you'll continue to do this research. And so I said to him, I remember someone saying that our family was friends with Booker T. Washington. And he said, yeah, they were friends, right? So I was like, oh, okay. And so I went to church and I talked to a friend who's a, she's a scholar. And she said, his papers are on file at the Library of Congress. So, well, let me go over there and check. But first I called and I said, do you have any Elliot's in the index for the manuscript collection? And they said, no, we don't have any. I said, do you mind if I come in and just look? And you have to keep in mind, this is a huge volume of paper. So I went in and um, I opened up one of the indexes and I saw 1914 Oklahoma. So I was like, well, let me check this out because that's where my family was. <laughs> and I pulled a roll of microfilm and I was flipping through the microfilm, and I was almost to the end, and I got ready to leave. And as I flipped the roll, the next thing that came up was a letter from my great-grandfather's brother to Booker T. Washington. And I screamed. It's <laughs> 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 like, oh, my God. <laughs> and so I screamed, and the librarians were shocked. They were like, what? And <laughs> as I continued to roll through, the entire rest of the microfilm was correspondence between these men. Amazing. And so I spent two months in the Library of Congress researching this correspondence. I thought this was a family history project, but then I started to find out more about what these black men and women, having come out of slavery, having come through Reconstruction in the midst of Jim Crow, what they were doing to help move the race forward, how they were forming coalitions, what they were doing to ensure that there was equality, justice, opportunity, and maintaining freedom. It seems like the advantage of starting from personal familial history is that it really shows how diving down into a very particular story can unfold into a more national story. So how long have you been working with the museum? I have been working on this exhibit since 2011. I came in on the tail end of the production of the exhibit on Monticello, The Paradox of Slavery. And so I helped with that, and then I kicked in full gear on the Slavery and Freedom Exhibition. Can you tell us a little bit about how you divide up responsibilities and who you're dividing up responsibilities with? Um, yes, I am fortunate to work with a dynamic partner. Her name is Dr. Nancy Burkhoff. And she started with us in 2013, and we conceptualized the exhibit, we laid out the themes, we came up with some potential stories. but. Keeping in mind, this exhibit is almost 18,000 square feet. 
And so to have to write that complete script and collect all the objects for that exhibit, it really does take at least two people. So Nancy and I do that together. And I actually took on the first part of the exhibit, which is looking at 15th century Africa all the way through um, Revolutionary War. I look at free communities of color and domestic slave trade. And then Nancy took the second half of the exhibit. And while we were responsible for each of our own areas, we consulted with each other to review our research findings, to review, okay, these are the objects we're suggesting that we acquire, and to say as a team, yes, we really want that particular object, or let's consider something else. We also worked together looking at um, graphics, just everything. I'll say this, and someone might say, well, Mary... You don't have to say that, but I think it's important. Nancy is white and I'm black, right? And so you have these two women working together. We've had different experiences in life. But I wouldn't change it for the world because we really have worked together to try and make this the most powerful, informative, mind-bending, I would say, exhibits because we want people to think about this story, to reflect on it in new ways. Can you tell us a little bit about the way that you and your co-curator approach setting up these exhibits? The museum tells the American story through the African-American lens. And so our exhibit is one of three in the history gallery. So we start with 15th century Africa going all the way through Reconstruction. And then the next exhibit is on segregation, goes from 1877 to 1968. And then the next exhibit is A Changing America, which goes from 1968 to today. Now, I say that because it helped guide us on what are the stories we need to tell and the stories that people will look for, the stories people won't expect, but also the stories that will lay the foundation for what comes next. It's also um, helping people know about certain parts of history that Sometimes they think they know, but there's new scholarship that's come out that really illuminates the story. Can you give us an example of how you might be representing new ideas? Well, this isn't so much a new idea as much as just um, having people think in a different way. So when people think of the antebellum period and they think of cotton, King Cotton, the driver of the trade, We want people to remember that it starts with the transatlantic slave trade, and the driver of the trade at that point was sugar. Mm. Sugar was like oil back then. The production of that sugar, where the U.S., with at least 12.5 million enslaved Africans being shipped throughout the Atlantic world, the U.S. received about 400,000, right? Mm. But when you look at the Caribbean and you look at South America and you see that there are millions and millions of people being brought over from Africa and you realize that many of those folks were being brought over because essentially in those sugar fields, they were churning people out. Lifespans were like seven years, right? So to have that realization is very important. And what's at the heart of that realization is this juxtaposition of profit which begets power against the human cost. Yeah. How do you represent that narrative in mm-hmm. a physical space? What's the first step uh, as you think about 
framing this for the Smithsonian? I know that initially they looked through like a bubble diagram. What are some of the larger themes we want to flush out? And they also look at the design. Some are hard walls and some you have a little more flexibility. So I came on board after those hard walls were laid out. And I say that because we continue to work on, okay, what are the themes? What's the concept here? And then having to look at the floor plan and go, okay, what's the space that we're dealing with? And how do we place these themes on the floor, right? right? And looking at how you place the themes on the floor helps you to understand how the narrative is going to flow. How do you group certain stories within a certain theme, right? So do you let people wander? Is it designed that way? Or are there beats that you want them to hit? There are beats that we want them to hit. The nice part is in the exhibit, it is chronological, but it also has themes to it, right? So um, to think about also, what are the questions people are going to have when they come in? You know, how did this happen? Right? Um, Who was involved? Did Africans enslave other Africans? And so You think through the questions people will have, you think through the known story, and then you think through what are some new things we need to share with them, and even the complexity of it. Yes, Africans enslaved other Africans, but what's the complex part of that, right? Right. And how do you show that off on the floor of a museum? Oh, you want me to tell you, I feel like I'll give away the exhibit. Well, you don't have to give away too much. (laughs) Well, we um, broke it out in three beats. So we look at two areas, Africa and Europe, and then we look at how they come together through trade. And then we look at how that relationship evolved through trade. And then we look at what did that mean and the beginning of the transatlantic slave trade. So are there specific artifacts that help you represent this story? Yes. We go down through the floor plan. We say, okay, so we're going to have this section that's going to be focused on prior to the transatlantic slave trade or the development of the transatlantic slave trade. And we say, okay, do we need casework here? And if we have casework, how many cases do we need? And then we look at, okay, in the cases, what are the stories we're going to tell? When you say cases, you literally mean a case with yes, objects in it, right? Exactly, right? So we have already developed, okay, these are our stories, but how do we lay it out on the floor? Are we going to have one case or two cases? Um, will they be on either side of the floor? And then once we look at our cases, we say, okay, we need objects, we need graphics, we need labels. And so we look at what objects will help us tell this story. I will say that our museum started with out of collection. And so we've done a wonderful job collecting, I believe at this point it's 30,000 objects. Um, and so to have a museum starting without any objects is, is pretty amazing to get where we are now. What are some of the objects that you've acquired during your time there? Or that um, the museum has acquired? Some of the objects we've acquired that are pretty powerful include one in the Middle Passage section. We have a, an amulet that was used by a member of the Lobi tribe in Western Africa as a form of protection to ensure that they wouldn't be placed in the slave trade, right? Then we have a handmade tin by an African-American man during the antebellum period, and he made this tin to protect his freedom papers so that 
as a free African-American man, if he were ever stopped, he could prove his freedom and not be placed back in slavery. And then we also have an antebellum period slave cabin. And so that gives you a snapshot of the breadth of our collecting from the different time periods, including the sizes. <laughs> so, yeah. So the Lobie amulet literally is probably about as big as the tip of your finger. How do you find the kind of objects you're going to use in museum in the first place? Well, I'll give you a good example. For the domestic slave trade section, I was reading a book about the domestic slave trade depicted in the artwork of Ira Crow. There was mention by the scholar Maury McInnes that there was this red flag that was actually placed outside of slave auction sites. And we see these historic images all the time, but Many people I asked, they were like, no, I never noticed the flag placed outside the window where they used to tack on a piece of paper and list the inventory of men, women, and children for sale that day. On the flag. On the flag, right? So I thought to myself, oh, my God, if we could get one of those flags, that would be mind-blowing because not many people are familiar with this flag. And we went down to South Carolina to do some other research down there. And while we were down there, we met with the folks at the Charleston Museum. And the young lady who's over textiles there had to go out of town. But she laid out this table of all these materials, knowing that we were coming. And each object had a card with it, with all of the details, all the provenance. And as I went upstairs and I saw the table, sitting on the table was this red flag. (laughs) Your face looks like mine. I literally, I'm not going to lie, I screamed. I was like, oh, my God, there it is. <laughs> I, was, I was blown away. And so they were so kind to work with us. It is actually, in fact, owned by the South Carolina Historical Society. I don't know of any other red flags that survived. And so we are able to feature it as one of the loaned objects from um, South Carolina Historical Society. And it'll be in our story on the domestic slave trade. So how we go about finding objects includes just like what I did, which was reading about the subject matter. Well, what would be the material culture that will help tell this story, right? And sometimes there's the obvious. People know about, you know, restraints, shackles. People know about whips, right? And it is part of the harsh reality of the story of slavery. But then again, there's like the red flag, which talks about the business of the slave trade. And we actually acquired the Black Fashion Museum collection. Uh Well, within that collection is a skirt that was worn by a young girl who was enslaved when she was about five years old, I believe. Mm. And so that tells you the human cost story, right? And you can imagine just seeing this, this little skirt and imagining the young lady who wore that skirt and what life was like. Nancy actually has done an amazing job unfolding that story. And we have a dynamic team of people who work with us. Our colleagues include a genealogist on staff. And so we say, here's this object. We know so many things about the object. We need to do further research to find out, can we trace the young lady who actually wore this skirt? How do you decide what to say about it. You have this huge amount of information available, but presumably the average person passing through the museum, you can't expect them to read a whole book on that one skirt. So you have to decide what to tell and what to hold back. What goes into those decisions? 
pain and heartache. (laughs) 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 Because the stories are so amazing. Yeah. And, um... We have a hierarchy of of a label system. So you will have um, a primary label, a secondary label, a um, an object label, a graphic label, an extended object label, an extended graphic label, right? Each one has a certain word count, 75, 50 words. That's so, standard across the museum? Yes. And when we initially write everything, we just write But then we, of course, have to scale down. And so it's a team effort where we really sit through and go, what are the key points? What is the most important thing that the visitor needs to know? But also, how do you say it in a way that it really helps the visitor understand the power of the object or understand the larger theme, right? And so word choice is very important, too. And we work with an editor who helps us to make sure that our writing is very tight. Hmm. Yeah, We'd like to say we're perfect at writing, but it's good to have an editor because as um, part of the team um, curating the exhibition, we do get so moved by these stories. And so we can want to write a whole dissertation on, on yeah. one thing. The other thing is the design features in the exhibit help it's, it's like layers. So you have the object, you have the graphic, you have the label, and then you have the design itself. What, right? what do you mean by design features? Design includes um, we have a wall that lists hundreds of slave ships. So you get that sense of the extensiveness of this business of the trade. Mm-hmm. But Along that wall, we still have labels that tell that story. But you imagine you read the label, you stand up close, you're reading a label. But when you stand back and you look at this wall with hundreds of slave ship names, embarkation numbers, disembarkation numbers, it becomes very clear how massive this was. You've been listening to museum specialist Mary Elliott. In a minute, Elliott tells us how she and her colleagues delve into and represent the humanity of the historical figures their museum profiles. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash working. Rules and restrictions may apply.
This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Apart from the artifacts that you acquire from the objects that you bring in, these historical objects, uh, you also have to make certain things for the exhibits, right? What, mm -hmm. what are some of the things that you've had to produce for the museum? Short films. And we have audio features that will be in the exhibit. And then we have cast figures. So if I were to speak to you about the cast figures. The cast figures are the figurines that the clothes go on and such? Um, it's like a cast figure, a depiction of Thomas Jefferson. Oh, so like the cast of the museum itself. <laughs> well, it's the cast, <laughs> yes. But it's also a cast. <laughs> yes. So we have, um, in this case, I'll tell you a few. We have Thomas Jefferson. We have Toussaint Louverture. Mm -hmm. We can't just look at a, an artist depiction of Toussaint or Thomas Jefferson. We actually had to do research on each of these people and really develop a character study on them because we wanted to make sure that it wasn't just physically this is what they look like, but we wanted to capture the essence of who they were and capture their demeanor and capture their demeanor at a certain point in time. So that can go from are we going to capture the demeanor of Thomas Jefferson when he's a younger man or an older man? Well, and Thomas Jefferson, we, we typically see depicted as a kind of heroic constitutional figure, but presumably here you're representing the less savory side of him. We are depicting the complexity of Thomas Jefferson. Right. He was not unlike many people of his time. And you want people to be able to say, hmm, that could have been me. You know, hmm. what would I have done in that situation? Here's this moral question. He looks like me. He looks like me, say, in age, stature, the way he stands, the look on his face. So we wanted to make sure he didn't look like a demigod. Hmm. We want everyone to be able to look at this person and say, that could be me. What would I have done? You look at Toussaint Louverture and you think of this man who led this revolution and had this fight for freedom in his heart. But it's also, what am I leading people into? And I have to be a leader in this moment. And how do I present myself to the world? Mm -hmm. We want people to look at these people as people that they could say, if that were me, what would I have done? Does that mean that you're talking with artists about how to represent their faces? Is it about posture? Yes. What goes into that? So when you do the character study, let's say, I'll give you an example, Phyllis Wheatley. Phyllis Wheatley was um, a frail woman. If you look at the image of her on the frontispiece of her book, she is wearing very delicate clothing and a more ornate bonnet. And she has more fine features, right? So we put that in the character study. And we asked them to design the model to that depiction. And when we get back the initial models, they'll show us the hands. Literally, we have to look at the hands. Are the hands delicate enough? How do we position her hands? Is she holding a quill? Is she holding a book? We look at the clothing. 
one person said they looked at her and thought of her station in life as being enslaved. But it's very clear on the frontispiece of her book, whoever modeled her or how she chose to wear her clothes, her clothes are not like a gingham scarf. It's a a very nice linen scarf is what it appears on the cover. And then again, you see the bonnet and the bonnet has a bow at the top of it. And it looks very feminine. We wanted to make sure that it got down to the detail of how she depicted herself on that frontispiece. Hmm. It helps us give a better picture of African Americans not having this monolithic appearance. The outside world can say, well, they just look like a black person. But each person had their own personality, their own features. They were their own person. So it sounds like what you're really focused on when you're thinking about uh, how to represent these details is how to restore kind of humanity that's in a, exactly in a context, a story that was very much about stripping people. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly it. Are there other sensory details that help shape that humanizing experience that you're creating? Yes. Nancy did an amazing job with the story on the builders, let's say. And there's a gentleman named Solomon Williams. And Solomon Williams was a blacksmith on a plantation in Louisiana. And oftentimes you'll hear the story of slavery and it's told, um, this is Joe. This is Joe with his hoe. And Joe worked in a field. He worked in a field. He'd get up in the morning at 3 a.m. He'd have this to eat for breakfast. And then he would have to go out to the field and have painstaking hours of work. And then Joe would go home and then he would start it all over again. Very simple. No um, humanity there. Just Joe and his tool. And in some ways it turns Joe into a tool himself. Nancy did an amazing job of showing the humanity, the life of this person. And we talked it through because we were like, okay, who makes up this this community? And then we talked through, Joe is more than that. He actually has a faith system. He has someone he loves. And even in slavery, he has his own aspirations. Joe has things that he likes to do. Joe has friends. But it's still the harsh reality of slavery. Mm. And Joe has skills. So in this case, Joe is Solomon Williams. And Solomon Williams, as a blacksmith, has a story that is told through life, work, and enslavement. Solomon Williams created this beautiful, ornate, double helix drill bit. Mm. And it required a lot of mathematical knowledge. He didn't have an education. But his skills enabled him to create this amazing tool. As a blacksmith, he also, in his life, created grave markers. And they are these iron grave markers that have ornate scrolling design on them. And we have had the opportunity to display the drill bit. And we will also display the grave marker that he designed for his wife. Hmm. In enslavement, as a blacksmith, no doubt... Solomon Williams had to make the restraints on the plantation. And so we have to represent that, um, a set of shackles, that while we don't know that he created those shackles, we know that that was likely something he had to do. So how that display is laid out is you have the story of Solomon Williams that personalizes it, but it also allows us to look at the humanity of him through life, work, and enslavement. So the objects fill out the story of an enslaved person. Mm -hmm. instead of 
just reducing to an object once again as he was under slavery. Yes. Right now you're in the installation phase. The museum opens soon. Yeah. Yes, September 24th. Uh, so what's that process like? How involved are you in the kind of day-to-day -day work of making sure that these exhibitions you've been working on for years come to fruition in the right ways? We continue to work on the objects and the graphics as things are starting to come into focus and we say, okay, well, actually, maybe this graphic needs to be switched out or this object, make sure that it's the right object that we were supposed to acquire <laughs> and that it actually does fit the case. Um, also looking at how we mount certain objects. Yeah. Also getting ready for opening. We have to look at the proofs and we have to go line by line and make sure that everything is accurate. Make sure that we didn't miss a single word. Make sure that even our writing, now that you look at it in an actual rendering, we say, it actually looks better if we change this. When we talk about the history of slavery, we're talking about hundreds of years of violence and oppression, and there are so many voices. How do you capture the kind of polyvalence, the range uh, mm -hmm. of those voices? Do you ever find yourselves worrying about leaving things out? We have not worried about leaving any voices out. I'd heard people say, well, it's hard to find, you know, first-person voices that early of Africans in America, African-Americans. But we found them, Africans along the West African coast. And we found those voices in narratives, in documents related to the slave trade. And we were able to bring those voices forward, and those are those quotes you'll see on the wall. Mm -hmm. It really does humanize this story. And it helps you understand that at every step of the way, Africans in colonial North America, African Americans, have always been involved in helping to develop this nation. Do you ever have to think about possible controversies or historical disagreements? We think through all of that. We thought through all of that. And there are three points I would make. One, when you walk into this exhibit, there's a quote from John Hope Franklin, the renowned historian, scholar. He said, we have to tell the unvarnished truth. And that truth encompasses a lot, even some harsh realities. Right. Mm -hmm. The other thing is we worked with a team of scholars that met with us quarterly throughout this process, and they are some of the top scholars, including like Taylor Branch, Jeanetta Cole. There were so many on the council that have generously given their time, talent, intellect to help us parse through some of these stories and issues. And they, it was like presenting your dissertation. <laughs> so they actually said, well, why are you making this point? How are you making this point? What do you know about this? Have you mentioned this? Is this still accurate? So they really challenged us to make sure that we knew all of the information, the scholarship that's out there now, and also that we were interpreting it properly. So that was phenomenal and sometimes terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> but From my own dissertation defense uh, in grad school, I can imagine. Yes. So um, <laughs> it was wonderful because they really pushed us to do our best work. In addition to the scholars, and he is a scholar in his own right, our director, Lonnie Bunch, who is a renowned historian 
and a highly regarded museum professional um, was also part of this. And he pushed us to make sure that we were hitting all the right points, but looking at even those um, harsher stories. Like, it's not, to me, I don't see it as a harsh story. It's just a question that many people will have, you know, Africans enslaving other Africans. Well, it can be simply stated, Africans enslaved other Africans, but it's more complex than that. Because you have Africans who enslaved other Africans for many reasons. And we actually have this in a label where we talk about it was done to save themselves from being enslaved. It was done because as a result of warfare, but also there were different types of slavery in Africa versus this new world slavery that was commercialized and racialized. And then there's also the notion that some people did it merely for profit. So it's not as simple as, well, Africans just enslaved other Africans. So we break down the complexity of all of that. Something that you can do when you have 16,000 square feet of <laughs> yeah. space to work with, I imagine. Exactly. And then um, the last thing I'll say is we made sure that all of this exhibit, the writing, how we selected objects, even down to the graphics we chose, it's all grounded in scholarship and documented. So we made sure that we have all of our sources tight and that we use the latest scholarship so that people can feel confident that this is telling the unvarnished truth with a solid foundation of research. The museum will open in September. Mm-hmm. What's next for you after that? <laughs> well, I continue to work with Nancy, and I'm excited about that. We continue to work on slavery and freedom. In addition to creating the exhibition, we also have the opportunity to do public programs, to publish some things together, and continue to collect objects related to slavery and freedom and the period that we work on. And I'm excited because while I love working with Nancy, I'm now working with my colleague, Dr. Paul Gardulo, who, along with our founding director, Lonnie Bunch, helped to establish the Slave Wrecks Project. We are looking at slave shipwrecks around the world. So featured in the Slavery and Freedom exhibit, we will have artifacts from a slave shipwreck, the Sao Jose, which wrecked off the coast of South Africa. It started in Lisbon, Portugal, went to Mozambique to pick up enslaved. Africans and then carry them to Brazil. But on the way to Brazil, it wrecked off the coast of South Africa about, I think it's around 1794. And there were 400 souls on board. 200 of them died. 200 survived and then were later sold. And of course, they were saved because they were human cargo and they were a form of profit. So it's a very powerful story. But Equally powerful is that this is a global story. So we are looking at slave shipwrecks around the world. And so now we're extending that story to look at potential slave shipwrecks in the water at St. Croix. So, so do you work with divers? We work that? with divers. We've been working with the National Park Service. We are looking at working with the local university, University of the Virgin Islands. And what's really powerful about this project is it's not just about the artifacts. That is at the center of this, right, to help illuminate this story about the transatlantic slave trade and the humanity. Um, it will sound interesting to use that word, but the human story of the experience, right? Mm. But the other part of that is the legacy of slavery in a particular site. So 
while we can get artifacts and bring them to the museum and tell it on a national level and international level, we also work with local communities to make sure that that story is told um, from a community perspective as well to help develop local exhibits. And those artifacts will go back to those communities. So we will be rotating artifacts based on the different slave shipwrecks that we uncover and really help tell this larger story of the transatlantic slave trade and the African diaspora as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Our email address is working at slate.com. You can listen to all six seasons at slate.com slash working. This episode was produced by the brilliant Mickey Kepper. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai, and the chief content officer of the Panoply Network is Andy Bowers. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.